who really knows what I'll say, so it might be a good last time for me to talk for a while. Um, I want to highlight a few things, and uh, the first one is actually something I was listening to this week by a guy named J.I. Packer. Some of you guys know uh, of him. He is uh, one of the regent professors uh, that, uh, that we've come to have a relationship with in the last five years. He also wrote a book last year that the adult small group did called Knowing God. And uh, anyway, I've been listening to a seminar on the Holy Spirit, which, by the way, I think is the topic we're going to do in the fall of this year, uh, Life in the Spirit. So um, I haven't really talked that over with anyone as normal, but we'll pray about it, think about it, and talk about it. Uh, but I definitely would encourage you to listen to the audio that I posted on the Facebook page, it's a little 17-minute audio, and um, just really encouraging uh, and one of the, the thoughts that I had that kind of came out of me listening to this seminar was how often we tend to think about the temple of God as being within us and, and how misguided that really is, uh, how individualistic in American uh, or Western that philosophy is. Uh, when the original Jews in the first century Palestine went to approach God, they did not approach him in their innermost being. They went to the temple to approach God. And while we know that we don't have to go to a physical place to approach God, and that's not necessary anymore, Paul, in his new understanding of the temple, does not, as many of us lead, are led to believe, say that the temple is within us. He says that the temple is the church. It is the body of Christ. And sometimes it's so easy for us as individuals to come to a collective gathering like this and think, okay, one more thing we do, something we check off our list... You know, we got to do these activities, we got to meet each other. But according to New Testament theology, the Holy Spirit is most at work and God is most present when his people come together. Uh, and that might be a challenging idea to you. It might be something that you've not heard before. But I want to encourage you that as you come together with the people of God, that you learn to uh, see that. You see God's presence and see the Holy Spirit working as we come together collectively. And if you can't figure that out and you can't see that and your relationship to God is somehow located merely in your own individual and personal life, then I'll tell you that you're missing something uh, grand about how God works. Uh, and so it's really exciting to come together as the church and as the people of God uh, in sort of a full recognition that God is working and the Holy Spirit is moving and that we are here uh, in order to simply bask in God's presence, to learn from Him, um, to glorify him and the things that we do for each other and talk about. Uh, and, uh, and that's pretty exciting stuff. And that will go and refresh us in our own individual life, certainly. But, uh, but I just want to encourage you on that because I think that's a really cool idea and it's something that really challenged me a lot this week uh, as I was, uh, was thinking about our church and our church body. Uh, a couple other things um, that I wanted to say. I wanted to remind you uh, again of the class uh, that we have on Sunday morning. So far, a lot of you have uh, been coming to that, and it's been really great. And I really uh, thank you for your participation. And that's just really encouraging to know that we've got so many people in our church willing to do the hard work of studying something that doesn't really seem immediately applicable to them. Uh, you know, the economy, the politics, the uh, you know geography of first century Palestine isn't exactly a page turner. Um, but I think you know what we're engaging in in the mornings has been pretty useful for our understanding of particularly what we're going to talk about today with race and ethnicity. 
The other thing is, uh, next week we are going to pretend like we're not talking about race and ethnicity uh, for when our parents are here during parent weekend and uh, pretend that we're doing something less controversial, so who knows what we'll do. Uh, but I just want to remind you that you know, as you look around the room, we have no space left, and so please come early if you're coming with your parents uh, next week so that you can ensure that you are in standing room only in the back. Uh, a side note on that is if you know of any spaces and facilities, you know, that would be good for us to know about um, because it might be time for us to sort of look uh, somewhere else. And so uh, that's great if, if, you, uh, if you know of it. Um, yeah, I think that's all that I've got. So I didn't do any preparation. I don't even have notes. I'm looking at someone else's notes. Hopefully I don't start preaching from them. I'm going to turn them over uh, so I don't, you know. Uh, yep, there we go. Blake, sheet of paper. Yeah. Because this is a topic that I talk about all the time in my classes, and besides spending a lot of time in prayer this week over the topic, I don't really need any notes for it. Uh, plus, Frank, who doesn't get enough credit around here, one of our many adults who sort of works behind the scenes. Let's see a Frank a round of applause. Yeah. yeah. Who literally, one minute, not even before church, but pretty much before I was going to speak, I emailed with my PowerPoint presentation and about 12 internet links. Uh, and that's just who I am. I'm terrible to work with uh, because of how much I procrastinate. Uh, and uh, yeah, so okay, he's going to help me out too, I think, and whatever we get, we get, and whatever we don't, that's fine. We're going to continue on in our series of race and ethnicity. The questions that I was uh, going to answer this morning are pretty sociological questions. Uh, why are we incorporating sociology into a topic of uh, church and the gospel? Sociology, for many of you who have even taken a sociology class or know much about sociology, is often pitted against Christianity. And it's true that a lot of my colleagues, you know, believe that the religion is a social construct and, uh, you know, it's sort of silly and some other things like that. Uh, although I will say in the South and particularly in the Dallas area, I have plenty of Christian sociologist colleagues, uh, which might not be very common in uh, other parts of, uh, of the U.S. Anyway, why is it that we're incorporating it into our talk on race and ethnicity? Or even just on Sunday mornings? Well, as people who follow Jesus and follow the truth, we should at any time uh, be ready to handle uh, the truths that come our way in the current society we're in. One of the really important ideas that will hopefully be unearthed in this study is that the Holy Spirit is at work in our world renewing the earth. And although some of us grew up in a background where earth and material and bodies and anything physical was doomed to destruction and heaven is some weird place where we all sing songs with harps on clouds, um, those of us around here who've been here for a while believe that God is very much renewing and repurposing our earth for His purpose which includes physical things, which includes the social structures of our day, and not to get too far into liberation theology, which I am not an adherent to, which says that Jesus' main purpose is to reestablish a reign and all of these different things in our social institutions and that Christians should be at the top of education and top of politics and all that stuff, which we'll talk about a little bit later. I do believe that the Holy Spirit is at work uh, in our society in the same way that God was at work in the societies historically. It didn't change Nothing's different. There's not a new age where God has chosen to sort of sit back and only talk about the world in spiritual kingdom terms and somehow be disconnected from earthly establishments and rulers and all of those things. Sorry, that doesn't work. There's absolutely no uh, you know, evidence of that in the New Testament, certainly. 
And our reading of it is, as I mentioned last time, is often coming from a very American, Western, dominant position. Uh, something that the first century Palestinians would not have understood, nor have been able to, you know, jump on the bandwagon with us. So once one of the main reasons we're talking about this is because we believe God is working at uh, the current time in American society, just like he's working in Syria and in Iran and in Iraq and, and all of the other places in our world where God is moving because he's a big God, a God that wants the message to be sent to the ends of the earth. And so as we address some of the things that are particularly happening in our society today, and this is much more of a sociological talk than it is a religious talk, it absolutely still falls within the purview of what we're doing as Christians, which is trying to understand our world better so that we can figure out how to be God's ambassadors in our world. So we can figure out how as a church to be the temple refuge for people to come to and find the presence of God. That's what we're doing. And if we stay ignorant of the things going on in our society or are unwilling to deal with them for how they are, then we will be unwilling to be able to provide God His insight, His person, into areas that are incredibly important for people who don't know Him. As simply a gateway or a bridge to really understanding who God is. We'll just ignore it. We'll neglect it. And in doing so, we'll present God as a very narrow God. A God that really doesn't exist at all, but a God that simply makes us feel comfortable for where we're at and what we're currently doing. And so we've really got to be okay with that, and uh, particularly in a, a talk like today, uh, hopefully you'll be able to get over some of the, uh, the stuff that doesn't seem overtly religious. But, oh well, we'll move on. So I had kind of three major questions today that I was supposed to answer. The first one was, what's the state of race in our society? And I'm going to give you more information than you want to know about that including the top 10 statistics about race that I think you ought to know, uh, along with the sources for that information, although I'm going to run through it very, very quickly because time just doesn't allow for us to go in and, and explain the nuances between, behind some of these patterns and trends, okay? I think that you'll find that it's pretty balanced and fair and that the resources that I'm using are uh, primary resources and sources and not secondary or tertiary resources. And I want to make just a small note about that, that anything that you're reading in CNN or USA Today or Fox News generally are, if they're lucky, tertiary sources, but at best, secondary sources of information, and so are often very unreliable, even though they're credible sources. But popular news media doesn't always do a very good job of bringing out the nuances of academic research, okay? And so some of the organizations like Pew and some of the other think tanks do a little bit better job of actually presenting primary research at face value. Uh, and so I would always encourage you on the various statistics that I'm sure you're aware of. We all have our pocket of statistics that we like to throw out to people. Um, tend not to be very nuanced or balanced. But nonetheless, it's a little bit like we use scripture um, for doctrinal issues. Hopefully, you can engage me if you want on where I found those things, you know, where I kind of came to that conclusion. But just understand the PowerPoint slide is simply a presentation of those facts or those statistics. And then the resources, I'm just going to sort of show you in each one sort of where to find and where to look at. Okay? But, you know, trying to show you an entire data set and pull out the numbers and the percentages and proportions. Although I would absolutely enjoy it. I doubt that many from among you would really be pleased. 
um, with that, since some of you have already fallen asleep on me just explaining what I might do <laughs> and not actually doing. Okay? Number two is what's the difference between race and ethnicity? Actually, there's four questions now that I realize it. I'm going to answer that pretty quickly and right now. The difference is ethnicity is slightly less arbitrary than race. That's my answer, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> uh, ethnicity can be both broader than our racial categories. If you think about, like, for instance, South Africans, who are both black and white, but tends to be a little bit more narrow than our racial definitions, meaning that it sort of talks about a particular people group with a particular set of values and culture and, uh, and it specifically biological differences. Whereas we mentioned last week that race uh, is absolutely not at all a biological concept or construct or a concept. It is a construct, meaning it is simply an arbitrary thing that we apply to people. Ethnic biological differences do persist, and there are plenty of them. But none of those ethnic differences can be lumped into categories of race, black, white, Asian, Latino. They are ethnic, meaning that they tend to be regional. Okay, as genetics tend to do, they're very regional and therefore are applied to ethnicity often, but not race. And so while race is a, a social construct, something that we just sort of came up with, differs based on history, differs based on um, geography and where you're at at any given time. One of the, my favorite activities when we get into race and ethnicity in my class is to have white people stand up. And inevitably, anybody who generally considers themselves white stand up. And, and I said, well, okay, all you Latinos should stand up. Because according to the most recent 2010 census, Latinos are white. Go figure. And so Latinos stand up. And then I say, okay, how many of you thought, think that you were white in 1900? In the 1900 census. And, you know, Latinos usually sit down. <laughs> uh, but most of the whites still stand up. And I said, well, well, actually, if you don't know for sure that you come only from England, Wales, or Scotland, then you are not white. If you have any of that dirty German blood or Irish blood or, you know, God forbid, Eastern European blood, you sit down because you were not white in the 1900 census. You were a mongoloid, a mixed breed. So race takes on different conceptions from time from location and, and really is kind of made up. Well, ethnicity is slightly less arbitrary. Ethnicity can do the same thing, uh, but it's generally more helpful in trying to talk about different people groups. And that's why you always see race slash ethnicity, right? It's sort of offensive that we're preaching a sermon series on race and the gospel because people are like, where's that ethnicity? This does not seem like a legitimate talk, okay? We need that ethnicity in there. Otherwise, we cannot get on board with this. That's why you see the two used interchangeably. But, but still, both of them don't fully encompass the kinds of diversity we see among religions and cultures and languages and dialects uh, that, that are truly found on our amazing earth. As we're talking in our class on uh, Sunday mornings, you know, ethnicity as a concept and race as a concept virtually didn't exist in first century Palestine. Uh, you pretty much had clan groups or tribal groups. Sometimes nationality could be a figure that you would, or a, an idea that you would use, but even nationality wasn't helpful because you had the ruling class, which was treated basically as citizenry anytime a group was conquered. And then you had the peasants who were not. 
And then you had various tribal groups within these regional areas who themselves had a reputation and a dialect. And so our modern conceptions of race and ethnicity really have no bearing on our understanding of first century Palestine. And if we're going to understand the kinds of things that they did experience in regard to what we're calling race and ethnicity, we've got to do a whole lot of unpacking to figure out the bridge between the concepts. And that takes work, work that many of us aren't really that willing to do. Work that, uh, that it will even help us understand our own uh, understanding of these uses, like with whites, right? We've got whites. We talk about whites as if they're just one group in our society. This makes up 63% of our population, unless you include Latinos, and then it's closer to 80%. How do you talk about a group that's 63% with any kind of consistency? You're talking about white Germans who are most likely to be in rural areas and be poor? Or are we talking about wasps who are better than everybody when it comes to you know, having money? We talk about blacks. Is there some generally agreed upon group of black people? Or are we talking about black Africans who are first or second immigrants who do far better than black Americans? By the way, many of the folks who we have in our church would be considered black are black Africans. What's well, a different group? Entirely. But when we think about it from a racial standpoint, it just kind of lumps them all in the same, as if everybody's got the same experience. And hopefully ethnicity at least gives us a little bit more of a nuanced understanding. An understanding that would have been a more akin to the understanding that first century Palestinians would have had in interacting with the various groups they were interacting with. Now again, we can't possibly talk about this without recognizing that we have as a society for convenience sake, for simplicity, for whatever, tried to lump people into racial categories simply to treat them one way. And it's just been the story of American history. We just can't really get around that. It just happens. And it makes it easier. And maybe because our society is so diverse, colorly, <laughs> that uh, this happened. And it was inevitable for it to happen. Because, you know, Americans don't have enough time to look at all the varying ethnic groups around them. So it's just easier to look at their outside appearance and say, yeah, they more or less fit in the mold. And it becomes sort of a system that's very simple for us. And then those things stick and, you know, uh, you know whatever else. The other question that I had, two more questions. Uh, and I'm going to answer the first question about state of race at the end because that's where I've got the most content. Uh, the next one is what's the difference between prejudice and racism? All right. Uh, prejudice is a little less mean than racism. <laughs> Trying really hard to give you inaccurate and simplistic definitions of these things. So remember, ethnicity is a slightly less arbitrary than race, and prejudice is slightly less mean than racism. Okay. I think this, you go home, you present this somewhere, people are going to really be like, yeah, that's got to be right. Yeah. Sounds right. Uh, it's short. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> like short in terms of what For the most part, racism simply says one race uh, or another is superior or inferior to another. Now, we're not going to get into the semantics behind these two because it's just not going to work. Um, prejudice is simply to prejudge Usually the connotation is without merit. So racism, one race or group, is superior or inferior to another. And prejudice, simply a prejudgment, could be race, could be sex, could be all kinds of things. You can be prejudiced against all kinds of things, social class, 
And the connotation behind prejudice is that we don't often have a lot of merit for making our judgment, our prejudgment. Okay, and we begin to treat people based on that judgment rather than really seeing them for who they are. Walter Lippmann, a famous journalist, once said, uh, you know, we usually see, excuse me, we usually define, then see, rather than see, then define. That's always been helpful for me when it comes to race and ethnicity. Kind of what we do when it comes to prejudice. Well, it would be very hard to say that any first century Palestinians were racist. But absolutely they were all prejudiced. And so we often use the term racism in ways that really don't mean racism. We mean prejudice. Because I don't think most Americans are racist. I don't think they truly believe that one race is superior or inferior to another. But I believe all Americans are prejudiced. <laughs> and sometimes their prejudice is based on racist ideologies from the past. And, you know, when you challenge it, you'll recognize, oh, they're not really racist. They're just kind of like a latent racist, sort of like a, a cultural lag. They, they lag uh, in racism, sort of picking up on racism of the past, and it's just sort of carried on with them until you finally challenge them with them. But most of us are prejudiced. And so we make prejudgments uh, without much evidence or merit behind the judgment that we're making. And this could be as simple as seeing someone and then associating an incorrect statistic with them and being afraid of them. Or stereotypes. Stereotype story is an interesting topic. Uh, I'm not going to do this with you because this is definitely not within the purview of a sermon. But one of the best classes my students like is when we spend the entire time coming up with as many negative stereotypes as we can about every racial and ethnic group. <laughs> and let's do it, Justin. <laughs> Spoken like a true white person right there. Yeah. Now, all my white kids love it, you know, so they can finally speak their mind. You know? um, low blow, you know, low blow. But I actually assign them a race and ethnicity at the beginning of this unit. So they don't get to choose. I assign them randomly a race and ethnicity. And so they're not just coming up with stereotypes about their race and ethnicity. They're coming up with a stereotype about their assigned race and ethnicity. And we go through every one, and let me tell you, in academic freedom, there isn't one that we don't cover. <laughs> Sometimes I even have to kind of stir the pot a little bit because they're not being as, uh, you know, uh, politically incorrect as possible. <laughs> and we talk about the implications and the prejudice that lay behind the negative and positive stereotypes. Because positive stereotypes are kind of their own breed because they make us think, well, these are positive stereotypes. They can't, can't possibly be harmful. They're positive. Uh, and sometimes harm, uh, positive stereotypes are far worse than, uh, than negative <coughs> because they limit the development of uh, racial and ethnic minorities in our society. So stereotypes work both ways, right? We see an individual and we say, oh, well, they represent this entire group. And therefore, they're proving that this entire group is this way. Or we see a group and then we think of our experience with that one individual and then apply it on the group. Stereotypes are very vicious. They go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And we do this all the time. We do it about ourselves. I mean, although I will remind you of the whole in-group, out-group bias I talked about last week, which is that we maximize stereotypes about others who are outside of our group and minimize those stereotypes about ourselves. This is a natural human behavior. We all do it. problem is the dominant group in our society gets a chance to do that without often being countered in their doing. And, uh, and that's what can be so tricky about that in-group, out-group. All right, final question uh, that I'm going to cover, and then we'll go back to the statistics one. And that is, what's the, uh, the difference between... Uh, actually, I don't know what the question is. I think it's just, what is institutional discrimination? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, yeah. Or maybe, what's the difference between discrimination and institutional discrimination? 
Okay? And, uh, and there's even a, a sort of a third category that's come up in the last decade that I think is very useful, although you might think it's playing semantics, and it's called interpersonal discrimination. Okay? Uh, or microaggressions, which people love to point out, and me. I'm just kidding. <laughs> and um, so discrimination is sort of the active form of prejudice or racism, right? I mean, you can't legislate against prejudice or racism. Just can't. You can't legislate against people doing what they're going to do in their brain, but you can absolutely legislate against discrimination, right? The difference between discrimination as a whole and institutional discrimination is that institutional discrimination is almost hidden. It's built into the fabric of our society so much so that nobody recognizes it as discrimination. It's not obvious. It's not a policy. It's not some simple, you know, uh, here's a rule or guideline for how we should treat different racial and ethnic groups. It's built into the way we do business as usual, and well-meaning people maintain the system. It's the worst part of it, and, and in some ways the most difficult part of it. Yeah? Could you give uh, maybe just one example of that? Oh, I'm about to give you ten examples <laughs> when I get into the top ten statistics for racism in our society. So... Institutional discrimination is built into the way we do uh, society. Now, I, I want to hearken you to a book, uh, back to a book I've mentioned before a couple times, but probably not enough, called The Banality of Evil. Grant, you started reading that, didn't you? Oh, that was someone else. Shoot. And it's written by a lady named Hannah Arndt. A-R-E-N-D-T. I can't say her last name. It's too hard. Arndt. Okay. And she was a Holocaust survivor and a journalist, and she basically, in this book, Banality of Evil, she observed the trial of Adolf Eichmann. Eichmann. Adolf Eichmann. I remember all those German names. Who was one of the, if not the, top leader in the Third Reich over concentration camps. Who, by her own words, was a pretty good guy. And she talks about him in these words like good, well-to-do, pretty average. Because she's blown away by how normal a guy Adolf Eichmann really is. And how even stupid he was to believe some of the things he was told without ever having visited a concentration camp. Even though he was the official leader over these concentration camps. And she coins this term banality of evil. Banal things are things that are insignificant, unimportant, go hidden beneath the surface. And she says the worst kinds of evil in this book she talks about are banal things. It's good people sitting by and letting a corrupt structure and system overrun people. This is your idea. We talked about this uh, two weeks ago when we talked about Christians being okay with recognizing and confessing societal sin. With even confessing church sin. We do a decent job of our own, maybe. But the idea of societal sin or church sin or organizational sin isn't something we've been taught on a lot. But this is what she's noticing. It's that all of these well-meaning Jewish, many of which were a part of a new wave of Christianity... That gets lost behind the history. A new wave of reformed 
Christianity in Germany, which swept through the nation, who were allowing the kind of atrocities to take place in their society that were going on, completely underneath their nose, whether they were ignorant, negligent, unconcerned, gave up too easy on reform, whatever it was, an entire group of people succumbing to the banality of evil. And amidst that, we have one of our greatest religious thinkers of the last 200 years who was killed for his own role in plotting against Hitler in Dietrich Bonhoeffer. One of the few voices in his own group of Lutherans who are mostly going along with the flow stood up and for the kingdom of God said, this is not okay. And of course it's easy in retrospect for us to look at this and say, man, uh, duh, who wouldn't? But somehow, the majority of Christians in this, this day and age saw really no issue what was going on. Call it nationalism, call it lukewarmness, call it whatever you want. There's institutional discrimination. And really it's overt discrimination uh, as time went on. It was very overt. But it all started with institutional discrimination. Building in discrimination into the fabric of society, which was largely unseen for many years until it was already too far. Too far gone. We did the same thing in our own country with the eugenics movement, particularly for folks who were of minority backgrounds and who had uh, cognitive illnesses. This is a whole other sort of history that, unfortunately, we've got to be able to own up to and address as Christians. And all Christians, in my mind, should understand and know about the eugenics movement. If just for the sake of not repeating some of the early mistakes our society did, some of which in the name of Christianity. Eugenics, E-U-G-E-N-I-C-S. Watch it when you're, like, really happy or something. <laughs> Look into it when you're, like, already pretty up and you may need, maybe need to be balanced out a little. <laughs> I have a tendency as a depressed person to sometimes watch depressing things while I'm depressed. Bad idea. Don't watch depressing things, Brad, and don't make major life decisions. Those are sort of my two rules when I feel particularly depressed, okay? Give that to you as a uh, guideline for yourself. So, institutional discrimination. And recently, uh, you know, th this uh, kind of movement in sociology called interpersonal discrimination, which is uh, a kind of way of treating people that, again, goes uh, kind of unseen and unnoticed by most people. And the tricky thing in particular about interpersonal discrimination is whereas institutional discrimination can largely be seen through statistics and figures, from kind of a quantitative analysis. Interpersonal discrimination is largely subjective and, again, without much evidence at all, other than the evidence of an individual saying, I felt this, which many of us distrust when it counters a point of our own, right? Because if we don't feel it personally, we're not such a big fan of listening to other people feel it personally. We should repent of that. Scripture makes very clear that we ought to mourn and rejoice with our brothers and sisters. We ought to feel as they feel. We ought to experience life in tandem with them. The kind of kinship we have as a community ought to be stronger than the bonds of family. So says Jesus. And so interpersonal discrimination has been documented in evidentiary research. One lady in particular who calls herself a feminist, uh, but... I don't, well, we won't go into feminism. Another topic, another day. 
her name is Mickey Hebel, M-I-K-K-I-H-E-B-L. Comes out of uh, Texas A&M. She has a really cool TED talk that's like 16 or 17 minutes uh, on uh, interpersonal discrimination. Uh, which is in a word when people treat you differently based on some outward sign. Uh, overweight, a certain race or ethnicity, their impression that you may be gay, whatever it is. And they begin to shorten their interactions with you. They begin to give you not as much eye contact, you know, things like that. And what's so tricky about interpersonal discrimination is that it can't really be blamed on the person giving it. It's often internalized by the person receiving it. What's wrong with me? What am I doing that is making this person shorten their interactions with me, feel uncomfortable around me, give me that stare, make me feel like, I don't know. I mean, I want to call it racism. I want to call it prejudice. But at the end of the day, I don't have anything to prove other than my own subjective experience. Something black folks in our society have been saying for a very long time. And something that many of us have not been listening to for just as long of a time. Subjective interpersonal discrimination. So you can go and look at some of these terms. For those of you who have done sociology before, I apologize for rehashing things you've already learned about. For those of you who have never taken sociology, I'm sorry about giving you far too many technical terms. Um, all I can say is this will be the last really overtly sociological lesson that I give you from the pulpit, okay? Uh, and, uh, but I think it's incredibly important that you understand these things because they form a framework for us understanding how we ought to be uh, God's children uh, to each other, particularly in the church. Okay, so let me give you my top ten statistics on race and ethnicity. I am not going to talk about these. I am simply going to give them to you. And I might make a, uh, a couple of statements, maybe suggestions to you, uh, and then we'll move on. But this is really incumbent upon you to check out for your own. If you have questions, if you have counter statistics, if you have different ideas, then you need to go and research and think through that and be in a kind of constant conversation uh, in, uh, in our church to be able to kind of get to. I don't make any uh, suggestions that this is all gospel truth. I simply tell you that this is coming from the best I would consider and most reliable research uh, in our society at current. Okay, All of these statistics are within two or three years. None of them uh, take place longer than that. Uh, and they do uh, longitudinal data, stuff that we've been studying for 50 or 60 years. And I'm not really for sure. I guess what I'll do is do one slide and then maybe we go to the links. I don't really know what's best. Whatever you think's best. Those links are going to be impossible for everybody to read. Oh, really? Well, do you want me to open the links? I just wanted to see the graphs. I don't know if the graphs are going to be possible or not. I could always explain the graphs. But I just wanted to at least, you know, yeah, the links are just for the graphs that basically show this in graphical data, which you know, might be easier for people to understand. If not, it's not a big deal, because I can always post the links on the Denton Facebook page, and you guys can associate each one back with the, uh, the links. Okay? And if you've got any questions, just stop me, and I'll try to explain words or terminology or just if you're particularly interested in information. Blacks and Latinos are twice as likely as whites and Asians to be under the poverty line. The poverty line is about $15,000. Depending on the size of family you're in, probably about 18,000, even a family of two or three. The poverty line is a figure we've been collecting ever since the 1950s. It's a stupid figure, but it is a figure. And I don't say it's stupid because it includes too many people. It's a stupid figure because it doesn't include enough. There are better poverty rate figures called debt asset poverty and asset poverty or concentrated poverty. Concentrated poverty is people who are living in half 
of what the poverty rate is. So if the poverty rate is 18,000, how many people are living at below 9,000? And in fact, 50% of all people under the poverty line are living in concentrated poverty, which means that about 7.5% of our population it makes less than $1,000 a month, and that's a family of four. $1,000 a month. Melissa? What? Oh, 15 percent? Oh, 15,000. Yeah, income per year. Yep. Sorry. Income per year. And the way we get the poverty rate is basically a really simple calculation where we say how much money do you have to have for food times how much money do you have to have for everything else and anybody who can't afford that is going to be below the poverty line. Okay, this number has changed slightly in the 1950s. It's gone down by about 2 percent adjusted for inflation. But basically, ever since we did, declared a war on poverty in the 1950s, we have virtually the exact same number of people under poverty. Okay? So blacks and Latinos. Latinos, I think, make up about, uh, you know, it's about 24%, and blacks, 27%, whereas whites, only about 10%, and Asians, about 9%. Now, what matters here, and I'm not going to give you these exact numbers because the numbers are where people get lost, right? But remember, whenever you're looking at numbers, it's important that you understand, and here's my statistical lesson for you, which is going way off of script, okay? Um, the difference between aggregates and proportions. Aggregates being total numbers, which isn't necessarily significant unless you know proportions. So for instance, if I say that more, the majority of people under the poverty line are white, we start thinking, oh my gosh, we have a white poverty problem in our society. But then when I tell you, yeah, but whites make up about 63% of our society, and black folks only make up about 13%, and yet we have now aggregately more black children than we have white children under the poverty line. Even though we have five times as many white people in our society. That just happened last year. And that sort of hits home how different things are for groups based on race in our society. So you got to know proportions and aggregates. Aggregates aren't enough. Proportions are what tell you what we would, what we would expect. So if I say that the poverty line is 15%, how many white people would you expect to be under the poverty line? 15% because that's a national average and yet we have 10%. Which means there's an underrepresentation of white people under the poverty line. And when I tell you 27% are black, that means that there's an overrepresentation of black people under the poverty line which accounts for why black and black, uh, brown people are twice as likely to be under the poverty line uh, than whites. Okay, number two, black poverty has decreased dramatically since the 1960s. In the 1960s, it was at about 45%. Now, as I mentioned, it was 27%. Whereas Hispanic poverty or Latino poverty has increased slightly, about three percentage points. Does that mean 27% of the black population in America is under the poverty line, or does that mean 27% of... Well, here's where your question is really tricky. In this particular instance, the answer to your question is yes, both. But any other racial ethnic group, it wouldn't be. Okay. Don't ask that question. Because <laughs> then I'm going to have to get on the board and I'm going to have to tell you the difference between sample sizes and population sizes and things get tricky and I don't know. If you guys want me to, I will. But the question is, what's the population we're looking at? Are we looking at the population as being all poor people? or all black people, right? So if we look at the population of all black people, yes, 27% of blacks, one in four, are under the poverty line. If we look at the population of just poverty, well, as it turns out, it's about one quarter of those who are in poverty or are under the poverty line. However, when we look at that 
excuse me, one quarter of people in the party line are black. See, even I'm confused by it. <laughs> so you gotta get your, your population right, you know? Yeah, maybe? Yeah, that's great. You sure? <laughs> So if I say of people under poverty, how many are white? Well, it's only about 51%. Well, what would we expect that number to be? 63%, because of our total population, 63% are white. Now, if I say of all white people, how many are under poverty? The number is only 10%. Making sense now? Maybe? Some of you are even more confused initially? Everyone's asking questions, you know that? What exactly? I'm gonna draw that real quick, you know? You guys are exactly like my students in my class, you know? I'm so unclear at articulating these things. But at least in my class, I have like a chalkboard. Yes, Justin? Yeah, you were saying earlier 15% of, of the whole population of people in poverty are white, but 10% of white people are in poverty. Is that what you're saying? Uh, yeah, 50% of, of, of all people under poverty are white. But of all people under poverty, Okay. Or, no, no. Of all people who are white, ten percent are under poverty. Okay. Yeah. Okay. You're kind of you're like saying things wrong. My wife over there, you know, saying things wrong. No, you're interpreting them wrong. How do you like that? Let's have a marital fight right now in front of everyone. I am. That is true. I do mix up two concepts every now and again, so you get what you get. Oh, whatever. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> uh, all you gotta do is see the graphs. The graphs make perfect sense of it. Yeah. Graphs. Graphs. Yeah. Graphs. Graphs. Yeah. You're like, what? <laughs> Great. So this is of, yeah, this is uh, uh, of each different racial and ethnic group, right? So you see how whites there along the yellow line, 10%, Asians right around there, it's actually 9% now, dip down a little bit. And where you have uh, blacks and Latinos up in the, uh, you know, uh, 20 and 30 percentiles. And this is children, start. Yeah, this is actually children, so, yeah, it's the next point. But this is the idea. Just gotta make sure your sample you know, population's right. Whether you're talking about of all people under poverty or of all each racial and ethnic group. But it doesn't matter. That's why I made it easy for you. I said blacks and Latinos are twice as likely to be under poverty as Asians. That makes all of this simple for you. So we don't have to go into the statistical analysis. If you want to go into statistical analysis, remember what I said at the beginning. Because guys, we're going to get into a lot more complex stuff than this moving forward. Okay? Do it on your own. I don't have a chalkboard. Yeah, start. What? Okay, so... Oh! Why did they only start... Measuring Asian kids around 1985, according to that. Did we have any Asians before that? Yeah. That's a good question. And the question is what we do is we do what's called a uh, threshold population. So we have to have a certain amount, and it has to be a large wave of immigration. We had a large wave of uh, Asian immigration in the 20s. And, and had a slight wave in the 30s and then had a much larger waves, a wave as we began uh, transitioning into the technology and um, you know, sort of uh, banking industries and things like that. So we really didn't start paying attention. Same thing, why we didn't start paying attention to Latinos until the 60s? Because we didn't have a threshold population yet. Sorry to spit on you. And that is, <laughs> we didn't have enough of them. We didn't have enough of them to where data would be really consistent. And still, Asians in our society only account for about 45 to 5% of our population. That's still a pretty small number overall. 
Okay? That's why our Asian stereotypes are the worst, because we don't have very many. Okay. Um, so, uh, there are now more black kids under poverty than white kids, even though there are five times as many white kids. I mean, this, this, is, this is very important. Uh, this also goes along with the statistic we'll talk about in just a moment, which is family structure, uh, which is divergent among the different racial and ethnic uh, you know, family sides, or family structures. Okay, uh, so you want to show some of the, uh, the data? Yep. The graphs? See if I can try to explain some of them. So this one, this is kids under the poverty line. You can see percentage-wise. This is a fair comparison, right? We're just we're comparing proportions. So this is where we get the idea uh, that uh, so many more black and Hispanic kids are under the poverty line than whites and Asians. And, and we really have an issue in our society uh, with children living under the poverty line. Uh, guys, uh, you know, one out of four kids is under the poverty line. That's a, a much higher number than our national poverty rate of 15%. And this is largely being driven by racial factors. Okay? And that's important to know. It's not just an issue of kids under poverty. It's particularly Latino and black kids under poverty. And so that should raise some real questions for us about what's going on and, and why it's happening. Uh, so then maybe the next one. There might be one. We scroll down on that one. Is there another one down? We yeah, scroll down. We're going to share these links, but if y'all really want to dig into this, these have, oh, yeah. these have the actual data. Yeah. Boom. Okay, that's what we talked about already, about those uh, aggregate numbers overlapping. Uh, and then, yeah, you've got uh, there are these numbers you can look at. Uh, the first couple of, of statistics are going to come directly from Pew Research. Okay. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Do we need that one? Nah. Maybe the next one. Let's see what we got. Okay, yeah, let's go to the, back to the PowerPoint. I should have just put my own deal up here, too. I, I did a very poor job of planning this visually. But if there's one thing that is important to know about my presentation is that visually speaking, mean, I'm terrible at visual stuff. It's awful. Which is weird too because I'm a visual learner. I guess I just don't care enough about you to uh, <laughs> treat you as I would want to be treated. So. <laughs> Breaking the golden rule fundamentally. 60% of black, 30% of Latino, 20% of white, and 50% of Asian kids are born to a single parent. Uh, this is the number one real predictor of why it is we have so many black and Latino kids under poverty. Now, we don't have enough time to talk about why this is, uh, although I would caution you against statistics like this. Statistics are only important in their ability to explain much more complex realities. Far too many people use statistics to try to prove some complex point, but that's not what they're meant for. They're meant to try to understand nuances in what's happening, and they give you a general framework. I, I always in my classes start with statistics because my main goal in statistics is to jog people out of their particular experience. Say, listen, your particular experience isn't anything like and close to reality of what's going on in our society. But that's about all they're valuable for. Because when I look at something like this, I'm going to want to know well, how does that contribute or is influenced by poverty? And how does it contribute to crime and all these other things I want to link together, which are not simple at all. And so we've got to be really careful in our use of statistics as uh, arsenal in our tool chest when we're not willing to really recognize and explain some of the complex realities that are happening uh, in our society. Particularly because this next statistic is one that I very rarely hear. Rural poverty for blacks, whites, and Latinos is far more prevalent than urban poverty. It is far worse. 
You want to know where concentrated poverty is? It is not in inner cities. It is not in suburban areas. It is in rural areas. A group of people who is very rarely talked about. A group of whites in particular who put our president into office because they felt so neglected. But this is really important. We just don't talk a lot about urban, black, uh, rural black Latinos and whites. We just don't. We're going to address some of the stuff going on. It's like almost, and this is, it, uh, dates back to a long divide in our society between people living on the fringes in rural areas and living in cities. Uh, and this statistic in particular is probably one of the most helpful to really understand first century Palestine. Uh, where most folks living in Palestine were, you know, particularly in Galilee, were in rural areas. The unforgotten. Whereas the folks in Jerusalem were in the urban areas and the rural folks are the ones Jesus went to. He was born among them and the God of our universe <laughs> sent Jesus to them. And then put 12 of their disciples, uh, uh, normal, common, everyday working men as apostles. That's amazing. And we, we have sometimes the same neglect for our folks in rural areas as, uh, as folks in the first century did for theirs. Blacks and Latinos living in the South have more economic opportunities than those living in the North or West United States. And this is a tricky um, uh, kind of statistic because here's the, the nuance. Here's where statistics get so mixed up. Southern poverty is worse than poverty in other parts of the country in terms of aggregate numbers. But when it comes to the growth and the economic opportunity to move up, southern areas are by far the best for blacks and Latinos around the country. And this is probably part of what's fueling some of the renewed conflict in the media between blacks and whites. Um, but that there are a lot more opportunities. Another reason why is, I, don't, I didn't have time to put this up there, but there's this really complicated figure in sociology called the index of dissimilarity. Wait till you try to understand this. Wait, let's see if I can even explain it to you. Basically, the idea is you take a population of a city and you ask yourself, how many white people are living with just white people? And what percentage of white people would have to move out of their neighborhoods in the city to make black, Latino, and white populations more or less fair and equitable in their city? So what percentage would have to move out? White people would have to move out and let black and Latino people move into their neighborhood to make the, not, not the neighborhood equal, because that wouldn't make sense, but to make it as just as diverse as the national population. So if a neighborhood like, and Denton is a really wonderful city because our city is exactly representative of the nation as a whole. We have exactly 63% white, we have 13% black, 17%, so it, it really like, pretty much is exactly what our nation looks like, okay? But in Denton, we have a high index of dissimilarity. Because if you haven't noticed, we're kind of located in what some of my white friends sort of get a little bit antsy when I say the black part of Denton. Look around. We have a heavy concentration of black people in this neighborhood. Okay? So index of dissimilarity in Dallas is about 72% which means 72% of white people would have to move out of their houses to let an equal amount of blacks and browns live in their area. Which means we have a very uh, racially segregated city. Now, it's in the top 50 cities. There are far, cities that are far worse. And in fact, the most racially segregated cities, and this is the reason I'm explaining this, are in California in the West and in the Northeast. 
which is one of the main reasons why economic opportunities are better in the South for blacks and Latinos than they are in the West, in California, and in the Northeast. It's because when you look at a map, and I have a map up here, the, the index of dissimilarity if you want to show it, uh, we do far better than our Western and Northeastern counterparts when it comes to blacks, browns, and Latinos, ultimately, you know, blacks, browns, Latinos, blacks, whites, Latinos, living together. Why is it not okay for us to say browns yet? You know, it's just, you say black and say white, and Latinos still gotta be Latino, you know? Color things, yeah, you know? I feel like any time a white person makes a joke up here about race, people are like, they gotta like filter it, you know? It's like, <laughs> it's like is it racist? Yeah. Uh, scale of six. Six, they're all the racist. Yeah. <laughs> so, you see here, us, the, the lighter the color, the less racially segregated uh, the, the area is. So, here we are in the south. You see the west, you see the northeast, and you see a highly segregated uh, country in regard to race. And, and this is really true, guys. Go to Chicago, go to LA. You will literally cross a street and it goes from an all black neighborhood to an all white neighborhood and, you know, uh, uh, so on and so forth. Yeah? Yeah? <laughs> it's completely equal in Oklahoma. Everybody lives in perfect harmony. So we should all move to Oklahoma. <laughs> Among what looks like, is that South of North Dakota or is that Wyoming? I don't know what that is, but I'm guessing they just didn't have the data to present it, you know, yeah. That's funny. I didn't notice that when I first saw it. That's pretty comical. And notice, guys, they have it by county, right? So we could even compare Collin County to Denton County. And you know, so forth and, and so on. You have really fun thing. You can do a lot of fun with these maps and stuff. Okay. All right. Moving on. We're going way over time, so I gotta I gotta move through this because we got a video to share and lunch bunch or something. And <laughs> I messed it up on purpose. Okay. I had the idea, by the way. Instead of the numbers. Instead of the numbers, for people to wear crazy shirts as the group leaders. Like, we go get, like, awful shirts at thrift stores. Wouldn't that have been better? Who wants to find number three? Or who wants to find crazy cat flying through the air with buildings blowing up behind them? Like, I'm going to be in charge of the next lunch bunch, okay? All right. Six. Blacks and Latinos. Oh, I already did this one. All right, we're on seven. All right, you know what? Let's skip the, the links. Let me just tell you this. We'll post all the links so that you can play around with them. There's obviously no way that can present this chart data to you uh, in any way that's timely. So I'm just going to go through the rest of my list. You go and do the research on your own. Blacks have a lower median income than Latinos, almost $7,000. Median income, guys, is just like, you know, if you remember statistics, you line them all up in a row and you take the middle. Why is it that we don't do average income as a society? Average sounds better, right? Most of the time we're doing averages. But why don't we do average? Outliers on what end? Rich. We have too many millionaires and billionaires. The average income in the United States is 95000 But I guarantee you the average person is not making anywhere near that. All right? So that's why we use the median income, which is roughly fifty-four, fifty-seven thousand. 57000 I don't remember what the last thing is. So that's why we use median income, because they're a more accurate average than the actual average. If that makes sense to you, great. If not, okay. But you can still see 35,042 are significantly lower 
than the national median average income of or median in, uh, income of fifty-seven thousand. And what's really particularly troubling is that blacks make significantly less than Latinos, even though blacks have far more college and way more high school. So blacks graduate college at 23% compared to whites 32%. But high school is where things get really crazy. Latinos only graduate high school at 66% and blacks at 87%. Blacks have the same high school graduation, guys, as whites do. Exactly the same. 87, 87. No difference. Okay? And yet blacks make considerably less than Latinos do in terms of, uh, of median income. Again, I'm not going to go through and explain why this is. This, you're just, this is, is what's happening. You go and look through it and try to understand what's happening. Blacks are much more likely to get arrested and receive harsher sentences than whites or Latinos. They are also more likely to be arrested for violent crimes. And this has been very, very popular conversation going on in our society for the last decade. Uh, in particular, this information comes directly from the Bureau of Justice. This is the nonpartisan you know, Bureau of Justice in our society, the last 60 decades of research on uh, uh, whites and, in fact, and blacks. And in fact, um, uh, three years ago, they did a huge what's called a meta-analysis, which is like a holy grail of academic studies and found that, that black people are much more likely to receive harsher sentences than whites. Uh, but again, some of that comes from lack of education, lack of wealth and money to be able to afford lawyers. So it's not just that judges are looking at black people and thinking harsher sentence, but it's systemic and structural, I mean, some might be, systemic and structural issues that go on to, uh, into and, and com uh, complicate these issues. And the arrested for violent crimes, I mean, you can always look at the victimization report each year and the crime report, and you can look through on each individual crime who's more likely to commit a crime. And it's actually surprising uh, because, in particular, when it comes to illicit drug use, white people use drugs, okay? Uh, with the exception of crack and marijuana, um, white people are more likely to use drugs than anybody else, and yet uh, black and brown folks are the ones that get arrested for drug crimes. Okay, so, nine. Police are not significantly more likely to get killed in the line of duty than they were a decade ago. I apologize for all of you Blue Lives Matter movement folks. They do matter. They matter just the same as they mattered 10 years ago and 20 years ago and 30 years ago. Has the, although the number of police officers has increased significantly over the last two decades, police getting killed in the line of duty is at a 40-year low. Now, this is police in some uh, local areas have doubled the size of their police departments, and yet the number, the aggregate total of police killed, which is about 150 a year and has been ever since the 1960s, okay, is at a 40-year low. Police shootings, however, seem, they aren't required to report this to fe any federal entity, which is insane. Let me repeat this. Local and state police organizations are not required to report police killings to any federal entity. It is not a law. They can tell you. They cannot tell you. You can find it through extraneous sources, but they are not required to report it. So our understanding of what exactly is happening is too difficult to determine because we don't have accurate reports on it. We have a very accurate report of how many police are killed, but a very inaccurate report of how many people are killed uh, each year by police. So police shootings, however, seem to be at an all-time high over the last 25 years. 
black and white disparities exist in those killed, but the data is not as clear cut as we think. So uh, some five or 600 people last year uh, uh, were killed. Uh, there's a greater proportion of blacks killed than whites. But some of the data is really, really unclear because remember the differences in uh, criminal rates is different for blacks and whites. So you get to go in and look at that on your own. Uh -huh. Just because police shootings is phrased in a way that sounds like it's police being shot. Oh. But what you mean is the police, police shooting people. And killed. Mm -hmm. Yep. But it seems to be at an all-time high. Uh -huh. Over the past 25 years, more people are being shot and killed by police. Yeah. Which, again, aggregately, guys, that makes sense. We got more police officers. We got more people dying. So again, it's not this idea that, that somehow police are systematically targeting. Uh, because remember, there's only about 30 or 40, and I say only, I'm speaking here in simple data terms, not in the significance of these kinds of killings, of unarmed black people dying uh, a year uh, through these, uh, you know, uh, in these kinds of shootings. And so, um, yeah, these are, are, are killing, um, and they range in uh, the penalties and in the reasons behind them and the various things that, uh, that you go on when you look at some of the nuances. Uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm not going to talk much about them because that's a whole other kind of political and interesting issue that you have to look at on your own. Okay, questions about these? So Before we end? talking about police shootings because police don't always kill people by shooting. This is police who've killed people. Who've killed in, in any way, shape, or form. No, in their duty as a police officer. Yeah. But oh, like, yeah. That's what I mean. But, like, sometimes they don't always shoot them. They, like, beat them up. Oh, yeah. Police killings. Okay. Sorry. You're right. That is inaccurate. Because it's usually by firearm. It's like less than 5%. But yeah, so, but yeah, police killings. Look at you guys with the semantics. I love this. It's great. <laughs> I'm not just like in Tong's deer ridden car uh, like five minutes before I, you know, came. A deer hit his car and, uh, okay, anyway. He's got like fur everywhere and literally, watch what I say. In five years from now, the only thing you're going to remember from this sermon yeah. is that a deer was killed. <laughs> Just like last semester or two when I talked about that bird, and that's all anybody ever remembers yeah. in the next, like, decade, you know? <laughs> animals. Care more about animals than you do. Oh, my goodness. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.